Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 3. You can turn there in the Bible or it's printed in your bulletin. Last week we read the first five verses of chapter 3 and looked, began to look at those. And so we'll focus more on the second part of this, the dialogue that happens between Moses and, and God. But it's worth reading from the beginning of the encounter. Moses, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning. Yet it was not consumed. And Moses said to him, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Just going to pick these up. The question, one of the big questions I posed last week is, if we saw a burning bush, would we turn aside? What are the disrupting events like a burning bush that God puts in our lives and 
would we turn aside? One pastor in New York was commenting about what a typical New Yorker's response to a burning bush would be, especially a burning bush that was not being consumed. And he said, well, some would just keep their head down and stay busy. Some would say, I didn't really get a good look at it. There must be some rational explanation for it. Some would say, I'm not paid to take care of fires. I'm paid to watch sheep. And some might say, will somebody call the fire department to put that thing out? The disruptions that come in our lives don't typically take the form of a, a bush on fire that is not being consumed. But the reality is that God puts disruptions in all of our lives. And all of us are called to respond in some kind of way to be paying attention. The study of the book of Exodus tells the story not just of God calling Moses. And it's easy to identify with Moses in this section that we're preaching right now and want to respond to the call of God. But we need to keep in mind the bigger picture of Exodus and the story of Exodus. And throughout, I'm going to keep stressing this, that as we read through Exodus, we should identify with Moses in some senses. When the distracting events come, what do we do in response? But we also need to constantly be identifying ourselves with those who are in bondage in Egypt and maybe even not sure that they want to be free from the bondage. Today we hear the voice of the Israelites calling out to God for help. And it seems clear that they want out. And God has compassion and he responds. But we have to only go a few chapters into the the experience in the wilderness once they go out and we find them groaning and wanting to go back in. I love the distractions of the park, don't you? I'll see if I can keep pace to the beat of the music. The people of Israel are fickle, and so often so are we. We read earlier in chapter 1, or in chapter 2, that Moses, he has a sense of calling even at 40 years old, 40 years before this encounter, now when he's 80 years old. And he says, I'm going to go deliver these people. Where is it coming from? What's that? Oh, wow. That is way over there. Okay. All right, so we we are called to both identify with Moses and we're called to identify with the condition of slavery in that place. And I want us to keep remembering as we go through this 
that many of us can identify with the slavery we read earlier that uh, Jesus pointed out in John chapter 8, that all of us who have sinned are slaves to that sin until we're freed from Christ. And so there is both a spiritual slavery that we need to be released from. But the book of Exodus is an important story for so many people who experience persecution in all kinds of places and in life. And when we read through this story, it's important to help to put to, to identify with those people as well and to be constantly asking the question, those who are suffering persecution in other countries still because of the name of Christ, are we able to identify with them and sympathize with them and pray for them and to support them? The Voice of the Martyrs is a great resource that you can find stories of real life, serious persecution of the church around the world. The experience of the African-American slaves were freed at the time of the Civil War, but have still experienced so much persecution in life in various forms in this great country and still do today, it needs to be acknowledged by the church, and we need to be mindful of what we do as a church to right the wrongs where we can that they have been done before. central theme of God rescuing his people out of slavery we need to be focused on. The second theme in Exodus that we need to be focused on and keep uh, our identity or keep looking to is once the people are rescued from slavery, they're, they're rescued to something else. And as we go through this, you'll notice that when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And if anybody has seen a, mo a movie based on Exodus, the story of Exodus, typically they get that line right. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. But usually the movies miss the line that always follows that other line when Mo Moses goes to Pharaoh. And that is, so that. And anytime in Scripture you see in order that or so that, we need to. it's important that we pay attention to what... Always Moses follows it with a line that's something to the effect of, so that they can worship God. So that they can worship God. When we're freed from one thing, from slavery, one thing, we will always go to something else. Bob Dylan famously said, everybody's going to serve somebody. And so Exodus moves from a rescue, a dramatic rescue from slavery and into instructions on worship. Because the right response to the freedom that we experience is to worship God. There's a third theme that I want us to zero in on and start to pay more attention to as we go through the book of Exodus. And that is the condition of the condition of the heart. And this has been something that I've talked about in various circles for quite some time, especially in the last couple of years in ministry. But I, I didn't quite realize how central this was to the point where it would emerge as a, a third main theme. But you think about what the response is of Pharaoh when Moses goes to him and says over and over again that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sometimes it's God who's hardening Pharaoh's heart, and then sometimes it just says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
it's interesting because both those things are happening kind of at the same time and we'll talk about that when we come to it. but pharaoh's heart is hard but then what's the common reference back to the book of exodus especially in the new testament the writer of hebrews picks up on this especially he says today if you hear god's voice don't don't harden your heart as the Israelites did in the wilderness. And so it's not just Pharaoh's heart that's hardened, it's the people of God's heart that's hardened. And the condition, the affection of the heart or the hardness of the heart is over and over throughout the book of Exodus. And, and, and as I've continued on in ministry, I've, I've come to realize that more than any kind of behavior in a person's life, either the, the hardness of their heart or the affection, affectionate heart or the softness of the heart is the most consistent leading indicator of a person's continued life of faith. Behavior in a lot of ways is easy to fake or even easy to change for a while, but it can't be sustained. If, if our hearts are affectionate, if our hearts are softened, we will continue in the faith. Many ways that we can uh, be misled in that, and we'll look at that more, but I want us to continue to keep being reminded of why we're doing this, and I'll summarize these more as we go along, but the the, the, the dramatic rescuing of the people out of slavery, the reality that we're going to worship something and the need to worship God and the condition of our hearts, the hardness or the softness of our hearts. Now, last week we looked at the approach of Moses up to God. And it's interesting. Let me just point out a few things in here. Do you notice that God didn't speak until Moses turned aside? It says the angel of the Lord appeared in the fire, in the bush that wasn't being consumed. But God didn't call out to Moses until Moses turned aside with a curiosity. Don't know what he saw of the angel or how much he could make that out. Or even if he saw it. But Moses had to turn aside first and then Moses and then God says, Moses, Moses. And then we talked about how he comes and immediately when God speaks, he says, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And we talked about how the holy God and unholy Moses. And, and one person pointed out that the miracle, the miracle that goes on here isn't just that the bush wasn't being consumed. Did you realize that the miracle, the bigger miracle, is that Moses wasn't consumed? The bigger miracle is that Moses isn't consumed. He's already standing on the holy ground. God doesn't say, hey, take off your shoes at the door so you can come into the holy ground. He says, you are already standing on the holy ground. And as we see Exodus unfold and as we see the rest of what worship looks like in the temple structure and the holiness of God and how you can't approach that holiness without a reverence.
It's amazing that Moses is even left standing since he is already on the holy ground. And we looked last week at that miracle that we aren't consumed by the holy God, but rather God puts his holiness in us through this great exchange that happens when we believe in Jesus, and that is Jesus takes our sins on him. We talk about that a lot. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's borne the weight of the sins. But he's also taken his righteousness and put it in and on and around us. And we don't talk about that as much. But even now, God is clothing Moses with his righteousness in a pre-Christ expression of his grace. It's the same grace that saves Adam and Eve when he says, if you eat the fruit, surely you will die. But he doesn't strike them down right now. He sends them out of the garden in a gracious act. It's the same kind of grace that preserves Abraham when he does some heinous things as well. And it's the same grace that preserves you and I when we come curious, stumbling toward the light. Not yet a believer, many of us. And we come into God's presence and we behold his holiness and, he, and we're not consumed because God is calling us and he's provided a way. Moses has been on a 40-year detour of his life. He's busy tending his sheep. He has to leave his sheep. But at the sight of this bush, he turns aside and he goes to see what this is. And turning aside, God calls to him and begins the most, one of the most profound dialogues in all of Scripture. We have these two fascinating questions that are related Moses says who am I who am I that you would call me to do these things now when he was a ruler in Israel in Egypt he would have probably stepped up and said I'm ready in fact he did step up and say I'm ready by slaying an Egyptian who was abusing and beating an Israelite But now Moses has lived a much quieter and humbler life. And he says with a much greater honesty and sense of realistic humility, who am I that I should be called to do this? Now Moses' impertinence, perhaps? Is it reverence almost? Ask the second question then after God gives him an answer, and that is, who are you? If the people should ask me, who sent me, what should I tell them your name is? And God has already said, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. They would have all known that reference. Moses presses further. He says, give me a name. It reminds you of Jacob when he wrestles with God metaphorically and, and really physically in the wilderness. He, he's wrestling with God and Jacob, it says, God touched his hip, but Jacob refused to let go of God until he blessed him. And Moses, Moses is following that example. He says, you've got to give me a name. The Egyptian gods have names. 
I need a name to give to them that can surpass all these other names. And God gives this fascinating name. He says, I am that I am. And those two questions need to frame out our look at this dialogue. Who am I and who are you? Who am I and who are you? Leading up to this. God shows that he has eyes of compassion and he hears and he sees and he knows. Verse 7, let me read that again. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. If you're reading in a Bible, you can go up to the end of chapter 2 and the last two words are that God knew. Verse 25 says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And then we come down to verse 7 and we see God saw and he heard their cries. And now we find out what God knew. He knew their sufferings. One of the greatest arguments against the existence of God philosophers all deal with this all Christian followers and teachers have to wrestle it with it as well and that is the question of how is there so much evil in the world if a good God exists how is there so much evil in the world if a good God exists There are many ways that we can address this problem, but the one that we need to come to always first is the promise of God, the assurance of God when he says in his word that he knows. He knows about the suffering. And we're tempted to think, well, he knows, but he doesn't do anything about it. But we see in a few key places in Scripture that he does do something about it. And then we see in other parts of Scripture, like the whole book of Job and a number of the Psalms, that God doesn't open up to us the reasons for, all, for the suffering oftentimes. But God tells us that there is a purpose in the sufferings. And one of the most helpful purposes Jesus reveals to his disciples, he says, you need to pick up your cross and carry it with me. He even goes so far as to say, Paul echoes this, that through your suffering, I am going to accomplish my salvation and other people around you. And so our suffering has the purpose of a missional effect to those around us. And it gives us an ability to face suffering with a new light, that it has a purpose and that God is accomplishing his purposes through us. Maybe Moses by this time doesn't remember the extent of the suffering of the people. He seems reluctant to take the call 
He says, who am I that I should go and do this? Verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's an honest question, and the question of calling on each of our lives is a significant one. What is God calling you to do, and what are you doing in response to it? Now, Moses has already turned aside to the bush. He's already showed a softness, a responsiveness to God. Maybe some of you are sitting here today and thinking, I've come to this place, and I've responded to it. But you need to hear a more direct call And that is God calling you to be active in his kingdom work to accomplish his purposes. In one of our recent sermon series, we looked at what discipleship is. And many of us think about discipleship as an increasing knowledge in the word of God. And the act of worship on Sunday mornings is an important part of increasing in our knowledge of God through his word. Our study of the Bible, both in small groups and, in, uh, and by ourselves, is essential. And our, our discipleship is formed around knowing God and his word. But I challenged us to consider the, the true discipleship happens and can only happen. It can only happen when that, the knowledge of that word is pressed into the real life experiences around us. And particularly when we show mercy to other people. When we see somebody in need and we respond and we realize this is messier than what I thought it would be. And in the central act of mission, when we are purposing, trying, praying about to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. The friction created in those relationships, in those encounters, is necessary for us to grow in our knowledge of God, in our experience of God, in our true discipleship as followers of Christ. And this is something that Jesus does over and over throughout the Gospels. He sends the people out, and sometimes he sends them out to do what seems like impossible challenges because he knows when they face those challenges, they'll come back to him with questions like, we didn't expect this. Teach us this other thing. God, I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I need your help to do this. Moses is asking this question, who am I? And Moses needs to be pressed into this call as well. We can identify with those people in the Old Testament who need to hear that call. Who am I? And what does God say? He doesn't say, well, now look, Moses, I gave you 40 years of the best education and experience in leadership and commanding various groups of people and accomplishing great tasks. He doesn't say, Moses, 40 years in the wilderness wandering around taking care of sheep, you are now humble and prepared and equipped to go and follow my lead instead of doing it on your own strength. Those are probably two important things in Moses' life, and maybe you have some kind of similar experience on one side of that or the other, or even both. But God says, 
I will be with you. I will be with you. When God sends us out on mission to accomplish his purposes, he says to us, I will go with you. And he goes on to say, not, not all those resumes. He goes on to say, Moses, when your faith is in doubt, when you are wondering what in the world did I do after all these things and you're in the wilderness and the people are rebelling against, here's the sign I'm going to give to you. You're going to worship with this, these people at this very mountain. At this very mountain, you will worship. It's not unusual that we need a sign that God is with us when we're doing the difficult work of mission in his kingdom. We don't really know if Moses' question was out of fear, humility, the reality of the situation, probably a combination of all of those things, but we do see God's promise and his provision in this. Now, the second question is this, and it's one of the most profound questions in all of Scripture. Maybe outside here, you can picture the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland asking that pertinent question, Who are you? Moses says, All right, you've told me that you're going to go with me. Now I need to know exactly who are you so that I can tell the people when they ask. The Old Testament context and context particularly names had meaning. They were connected to attributes. And the people, even of the Canaanites, they worshiped certain gods that were oftentimes doing various horrendous things and sacrificing live people and various other things. So Moses is asking God, will you give me a name that communicates something more about your character, who you are? And God answers with a simplistic answer that is complex enough to confound philosophers throughout the ages, theologians, and all of us. I am who I am. He's hinting at a number of things. One is that he has no beginning and no end. He simply is who he is, or some... So you can even translate this, I will be who I will be. I am my own person. And we're all tempted to come to God and say, God, I don't think you're quite measuring up to my expectations. And when we come in that way, we're kind of expecting God to say, I am who you want me to be. I am who you want me to be. And it's important to pause for a second to ask the question in your heart, what are you saying to God that you expect him to come back to you and say, I am who you want me to be. All right, I'll change my ways because, because you have come to me. The reality of that situation is that that is not a God who we would ever care to worship. It, was a God, it would be a God who was fickle, who would change at the whims of all of our desires. But the God who says, I am who I am, 
is the God who you can come to when you're going through all kinds of difficulty, when you're being pressed into mission, needing structure and support around that, who will say, I cannot be moved. Over and over again, Jesus picks up on this illustration. I am the rock. I cannot be moved. And Jesus even presses into this in the dialogue in chapter 8 to John chapter 8. His famous dialogue is given some of his I am statements and people are challenging him on who he is, asking, who are you? Similar question to, uh, to, to what Moses is asking and and and. Ab- and Jesus is is connecting himself with Abraham and challenging them on some of their assumptions and saying, are you really children of Abraham? I know you're physically descendants of Abraham, but are you really children of Abraham? And they're finding great comfort when Jesus is challenging them in this physical descendant, that they're physically descendants of Abraham. And it's their hope, it's their rock. And then Jesus in, in verse 58, John 8, 58, he absolutely blows up the whole dialogue. It's fairly civil up to this point. He's definitely challenging him. But the whole thing explodes when he says these words. Afterwards, it says they try to kill him. They try to run him out of town. They're, they're one to stone him. And what are the words that Jesus says that absolutely, truly, truly, I say to you, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And you say, well, that must be just a grammatical error, and it's it's funny in the Greek language, and we don't get it. Really, he's saying, before Abraham was, I was, and and it's it's Jesus saying that I existed from before. We know that about the Trinity. We, We, you know, Jesus is... But it's not a grammatical mistake in our translation. It's very intentional. There was a very clear way it could have been written to say, before Abraham was, I was. Some people like to come to the New Testament and say, show me where Jesus says, I am God. Open it up. Show me. I don't believe that he actually says, I am God. But when, when Jesus is talking to these Jews who know their theology, and he says, before Abraham, what? Man, that was quick and fast and loud. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, everybody in the crowd would have dropped what they were doing. Jaws would be open. And they would have said, he just said, I am God. He's been saying, I am the gate, I am the shepherd, I am all these other things. But now he just simply said, I am. And if you're reading through the Hebrew, that is essentially the same thing as saying Yahweh. The name that is translated from the statement, I am that I am, or I am Yahweh. Jesus just dropped the bomb saying, I am Yahweh. And they said they they ran him out trying to kill him. Some believed, but others ran him out trying to kill him with stones. And Jesus comes to them and he says, you look to the security of being a child of Abraham. 
And in looking there, you, you fail to see that it's the God of Abraham who truly brings the salvation. It's the God of Abraham who delivers the people out of Egypt and slavery. It's the, only the God of Abraham who can truly bring the salvation that you need. And when we look to these other, other places for assurance and salvation and identity, we quickly lose sight of the God who saves us by his mighty hand, who delivers us out of slavery and brings us to the mountains so that we can worship God in fullness. Jesus hung on the cross to pay the ransom price to redeem us from the slavery that we were caught up in. Now, who gets paid? Who needs to be paid to free the slaves? Say, well, should they pay Satan because he's been keeping in bondage? We're the ones keeping ourselves in the bondage of slavery. We have entered into it willingly. Sometimes you'll hear stories of slaves in various contexts who are freed. And the Israelites did this as well. And once they experience the freedom, they say, I want to go back. When we're drawn back into the temptation to sin, it's a temptation to go back into slavery. We constantly battle this as Christians. When we're tempted to abandon God because it seems like he's not present or we aren't ready or willing to go into this mission that he's called us to, we're tempted to go back into slavery. Satan doesn't get paid off. God's paying himself. God's paying the price of that slavery so that it will never be brought into his kingdom again. The price is not cheap. Somebody needed to pay the price for the sin. And Jesus is the one who enters in and says, I I will pay the price for the sin. I am the good shepherd, he says. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. When he cries out on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because he is feeling and experiencing the weight of the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin is a distance, a relational distance from God. For the first time ever in his life, and the only time, Jesus experiences a distance from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Why does God appear as a flame? A burning fire not consuming the bush. We talked about the symbol of fire being a symbol of both judgment, burns up the things. It's also a symbol of purification, a refiner's fire. The symbol of the fire, judgment, purification, but we haven't talked about the most significant. I don't think I mentioned it last week. The most significant symbol of the fire, and we, we did get into this a little bit in the Bible study on Acts. The fire throughout Exodus and oftentimes, most often through the Bible, symbolizes the very presence of of God. Moses with the bush, 
the pillar of fire leading the people through the through the wilderness the, the smoke that rises up and the sacrifice that are sacrifices that were offered on the at the temple over a flame the fire symbolizes the presence of God. That's why in Acts, we talked about this in the Bible, say Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the people receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, is symbolized by fire because God is present with them by the presence of his Holy Spirit put into the people. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and that's why the Holy Spirit is typically symbolized by fire. It is the presence of God with his people. And so when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing the antithesis, the opposite of the presence of God. And he can't bear the weight. And he cries out knowing that he needs the presence of God, but also knowing that he was called to do this thing for us. And in that thing, he bore that weight of our sin that separates us from God so that we can experience the blessing of his promise, and that is union with God. The Holy Spirit is within us. The fire of God is within us. And the beauty is that it doesn't consume us. Rather, it is holiness that comes and lives in us And it equips us for this mission. And even though the mission is more than we could ever hope or imagine to do ourselves, if we were to make it up ourselves. God says, my presence, my fire is within you to accomplish my purposes to send you out on this mission. To rescue many others out of slavery. To proclaim the good news to the prisoners. Do you feel weak in your ministry and witness? Do you feel weak in your faith, not even believing if God has truly done this for you? Go back to the dialogue between Moses and God and be refreshed and encouraged and renewed. Ask the questions that Moses asked. Who am I? And who are you? And know this, that God will answer I am that I am, and I, I will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to this mountain top here this morning to worship you. May your people, may we be strengthened by this dialogue between Moses and you. May it challenge us and push us into the work of mission to show mercy, to have hearts of compassion, to to plead, to confess our sins to you that you would cut away the hardness that's in our hearts. Father, may we live out this great reality that you are at work in us and through us and have called us holy, friends of God, children of promise. Jesus, we thank you and we pray all this in your powerful name. Amen.